Are you ready, ladies? Stand tall. Straighten those crowns and show them what you're made of. You're listening to the Farm Queen Podcast. So today on the podcast, we have Erica, and she's a unique addition to our interview lineup here because she also works at one of the uh, agricultural authorities around the the country at Cornell Small Farms. Um, And so we wanted to kind of switch this up a little bit and, and mention that, you know, the reason she was nominated by our previous queen, Trisha, was because because of the fact that she works at Cornell um, and she does this holistic management training and Trisha felt like she was deserving of the crown because of being a true, not just farmer, but a mentor, a teacher, a leader, an advisor, just really made a difference for Trisha in terms of kind of the progression of her farm. So I will let Erica tell you guys all about herself instead of me doing it. So Erica, welcome. It's good Thank to have you. you today. Thanks so much. So could you take a few minutes and can you introduce yourself uh, again and tell uh-huh. us a little more about your farm, what you what you have going on on your farm, how long you've been at it. Give us kind of a picture of a day in the life for you and your family on the farm. Sure. Um, well, hi everyone. I'm, I'm Erica Fernay. I um, I run Shelter Belt Farm with my husband, Craig, and my kids, Rowan and Phoenix. And this 2023 will be, I think, our 13th or 14th year. And our farm has changed so much over time. Um, and in particular, in the last year and a half, uh, that it's, uh, it's, it's hard to say like what a day in the life on our farm is, because um, it's always so different. But we um, we started in 2010 raising pastured broiler chickens, and then we added turkeys. And at that point, we didn't even live on the land, and we had taken over this piece of land that had been abused um, for years with like crops that really shouldn't have been grown. We we're on a hillside with some pretty shallow soils, um, and it was grown in just corn. So the soil kind of uh, sloughed down the hill and, and then it had been left alone for 30 years and just not managed at all. So it was significantly covered with rose bushes and pine trees and um, honeysuckle when we got here. Um, And there was no house or infrastructure, no fencing or water or anything like that. Um, And so we, we started raising chickens because it was the easiest thing to do on when we didn't live here and we were bringing water by the bucket, things like that. Um, and then we spent the really the first decade just building infrastructure, adding new enterprises. We raised turkeys and pigs. And then as soon as we had enough forage, we started adding sheep and then we added beef. At one point we had a hundred ducks for eggs. Um, we have a small orchard with a couple hundred trees. We've had a small apiary. We've been building fence, building three high tunnels, building our house, building a barn that was really not a barn. 
it was barn shaped, but was really like the heart of our farm, had my farm store and my husband's workshop and our friend's apartment in it. Um, and our friends helped out on the farm a lot. And in 2021, the fall of 2021, that structure burned down. And so that was just a little over a year ago. And we're we're still like experiencing kind of ripple effects from that fire. Um, we had to get rid of all of our livestock after the fire. And um, I, we lost our primary market channel, which was the, the self-serve farm store. So we, we have sheep now and we still have the orchard, of course, but we don't have our laying flock of chickens now and we don't have bees anymore. And the flock of sheep is much smaller than it was before the fire. So we're still just rebounding from all of that. Goodness, that sounds like it's been a heck of a road for the last, you said that was fall of 21, right? Yeah. Last year plus coming up on year and a half, I suppose. Um, how is that? I guess I have two kind of questions from that in terms of what is it that drove you to do what I would consider something of the more unusual method of farming uh, it sounds like you're not living on that land. You said you're building a house, right? We so we are now living on the land. Oh, you are now. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I jumped way ahead there. We started out <laughs> not living here. My husband is a builder. And so we had gotcha. bought the land with his parents. And in 2010, we bought the land. A year later, he built his parents' house. And we actually all moved in together into their house. And... Three years later, we finished, well, I could say finished, but anyone who's ever built a house knows that the finished goes in like quotation marks. Um, yep. <laughs> we finished our house and moved in. Um, so we've actually lived on the, we now have lived in our house on the land for eight years, um, but have been building and doing major building projects pretty much every year that entire time. We've just, we're still building a, a thousand square foot greenhouse that's attached to our house. Um, we built glamping accommodations, like we built a full bathhouse with um, plumbing, you know, hot water showers, a rustic kitchen, flush toilets, and then built a tent platform. And we host overnight guests on the farm. And um, we thought we were just about done with the building projects. And I was joking with my husband that we were going to shift to just like maintaining all the stuff that we've built uh, that, you know, just slowly breaks down over time. And then the barn burned. And so now we're again involved in a major building project uh, to re rebuild that space. Goodness, you guys sound busy. <laughs> so tell us why it is that you got into farming in the first place. Mm, I think it was probably mostly my love of food and my love of um, working outside and having my hands in the soil. And so before we uh, moved here, we had a little like 1860s farmhouse with a couple acres and we didn't have kids at the time. We both spent all of our free time just gardening and growing mushrooms and we raised a few pigs and a few chickens for eggs and some for meat. And, you know, basically we're producing almost all of our food. And at some point we said, well, this is a lot of work. Um, you know, neither of us comes from a farming background. I grew up in Madison County, New York, so I was surrounded by farms, but I think probably anyone who knew me when I was a kid would be kind of shocked to know that I went into farming. Um, 
And yeah, so we decided we were spending all this time and energy and absolutely loving producing food and sharing it with neighbors. And we sold just teeny bits here and there. Like we'd raise three pigs and sell two of them and keep one for ourselves, that kind of thing. But we didn't have a business at that point. And um, we decided that we were ready to give it a go. Part of it was when I did holistic management training from 2002 to 2004. Um, I was vegetarian at the time, but a big part <laughs> of the training was around grazing because, um, I mean, holistic management is about decision-making but it also has this constellation of planning tools that come with it. And one of them is grazing planning. And we visited ranches in Texas and in Australia, actually, as part of the training. <clears throat> and it was pretty mind-blowing to see next to each other, like two pieces of land, one where the animals had been managed in a way that was intended to restore and regenerate the landscape and this one ranch that we were on had actually gotten a creek that had been dry for a couple of decades, had gotten it to start running again. And you know, they had the same amount of rainfall as a ranch just down the road that was not managing their animals um, as a tool for regenerating the landscape. And I, you know, I didn't know the first thing about managing livestock at that point. I had never raised even a chicken, but, um, and like I said, I was a vegetarian, but I was absolutely just lit on fire by that idea of animals as a way of managing the landscape and producing better soil health and biodiversity of plants and animals and really heart healthy food for humans. So that was a, a big part of the inspiration of wanting to grow bigger what we were doing you kept saying i was a vegetarian i was a vegetarian would you say <laughs> that you are not anymore now that you raise That's your own correct. yes i'm definitely not now i think um i i think it would probably be hard to be an effective marketer if i was trying to sell the meat that i raise uh to customers and when they ask for recipes saying well I don't know. I actually don't eat it, but I've been told that if you cook it this way, it's pretty good. <laughs> so, right. um, no, so we, yeah, we eat what we, what we raise. And so now we, we do eat all kinds of meat. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's probably comes across as a little suspicious of like, wait, you don't eat it? Yeah. You sell it? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a compelling reason to not be a vegetarian when you're a farmer, I suppose. Yeah. So at this point in time, um, everybody had a chance to see your little crowning ceremony outside of the tractor supply, which was <laughs> just the most appropriate place to pass off a crown. <laughs> but I mean, we kind of saw your reaction, but tell us, how does it feel to have gotten the crown? Like, how did it feel when you got it? How does it feel to absorb this concept that you're being honored as a, as a standout farm queen? How does that all kind of sit with you? Oh, um, I don't know. I guess I, um, mostly I've been enjoying the fun side of it and was joking that it, uh, I accepted it mostly so that I could get my kids to call me your majesty all week, but, um, that has, hasn't worked, hasn't worked very well, to be honest. No. Um, I don't know. I was really, I was surprised when, when Trisha reached out, um, 
I, I met Trisha a long time ago when she took a holistic management training that I was teaching for beginning women farmers. And, um, and then I just invited her recently to be a guest presenter in one of the online courses that I teach that's sort of a, so you think you want to farm kind of, uh, we call it BF 101, starting at square one through the Cornell Small Farms program. And I just, I love her story. And I was really touched because I didn't realize um, that to the extent to which the training that I offered had had really helped her farm along. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's, um, it's easy to get really busy and forget to stop and reflect. So I appreciate this opportunity to not only to reflect on like Trisha and why someone would have chosen her and how far she's come. Cause you know, when I met her, she did not have the farm business that she has now. It's been really cool to see the growth and then to think back on where I was when, when I met Trisha and how far my farm has come. And also I'm pretty excited to get to choose the next farm queen too. I have to, I have to ask, are you having a difficult time narrowing it down to just one, just like everybody else has been? Yeah, for sure. Yes. Um, but I do have one person in mind now for sure. So. Well, we can't wait to meet her. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, as far as being a woman in farming, which obviously is not the stereotypical presentation of quote unquote farmer. What is the most common misconception that you come across as a woman in agriculture or about women in agriculture? Hmm. I think uh, mostly just that it's this idea that women can't be farmers. Um, that's probably the main one. And it, it's not just women, of course, like, I have gone through the exercise of like Googling US farmer before. And this is this is something that we talk about at the Small Farms program a lot, that in our country, the concept of who is a farmer is really narrow. Um, so if you Google US farmer, it's pretty much all older white men wearing trucker caps and plaid shirts and standing next to a tractor in a field of corn. And, yep. um, you know, and that is pretty close to the truth, right? Like that is probably the the majority, the vast majority of farms in this country. Um, but I, I just think it does a disservice to then to paint that picture. And so other people think, oh, well, I, I can't be a farmer then I don't look like that. And so not just women, but people of color, and immigrants and refugees. And, um, you know, there's a really huge diversity of people, um, the original farmers in this country, the um, indigenous people who have been here longer and are still here. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't recognize farmers more broadly. So, so that's maybe the first thing, but specifically myself, like what I have encountered is more like uh, a stereotype around um, technology and mechanical things. Mm. Um, if I, or construction things too, like if I've had people say to me, if I'm wandering around in um, Lowe's or Agway or something, you know, looking for parts for something, oh, you know, did your husband sent you to get something? 
I actually had a woman say that to me once and I gave her this look like, really? Really? That's what you, <laughs> that's what you think? So, um, yeah, I don't know. There's just, there's a lot of stereotypes along those lines that women aren't strong enough, can't work as hard, aren't as mechanically inclined. Um, and, and I think it's all BS. I think, uh, primarily it's just how our, it's the cultural narrative that we have. Very interesting one to bring up. Do you feel like, um, since you obviously have through your, you know, through your work, you work with small farms specifically, not those, you know, mega farms, we'll say. So would you say that you see, generally speaking, a um, a more diverse presentation of who is a farmer coming to you through those small farms programs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't have the statistics right in front of me for like who the students in our online courses are, but I can tell you that it is definitely like much more diverse than the, you know, this cultural stereotype of who is a farmer would have you believe. Um, you know, and there's, I think we, we don't tend to talk much about farming in urban areas, but we see a lot of really active and amazing farming happening in urban places. Um, definitely a lot of people of color, a lot of military veterans, more than half of our students tend to be women. So, you know, I think, I think there's, there's tons of interest and there's a lot happening and it's, it's pretty exciting to see farming be more diverse and more representative of the population. That's very cool that you have that kind of inside look at it. So kind of along those same lines, um, you know, pretend you're speaking to your customers specifically, is there something that you wish your customers knew about your life as a farm woman that they maybe don't know? Um, I don't know. It's not specific to being a farm woman, but being a farmer. Um, just I, I'm a, I'm frequently astonished by how simplistic most people's idea of of agriculture is. And I know that we're we're really accustomed to cheap food in this country, and um, because farmers if they're crunching their numbers anyway, you know, they're uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes charging more than what supermarket food costs. Um, I, uh, there's, there's like the stereotype of like local food being elitist. And um, I don't know, I just, I, I wish that people understood how much goes into raising really good food. And um you know, I, I still hear people say things about raising animals, for example, like, yeah, well, what's the big deal? Don't you just like put them out there and give them some food and water and, <laughs> you know, and then like harvest them a few, few months later or whatever. <laughs> and I, I don't even, I don't even know where to start when people say things like that. So that's part of why uh, I like teaching classes and like the, the BF 101 online course that I teach is we talk about removing people's rose-colored glasses and how sometimes in the beginning of the course, especially it, it might feel like we're trying to smash people's farm dreams, but we're not. We're just trying to like calibrate their sense of what's realistic. Right. That makes sense. You you want people to understand that it's not 
like you said, it's not just put them out there and do it. There's also the medical, there's, you know, like oh, you mentioned so in the very much. beginning, the yeah. land, the land management and grazing and. Oh, and you know, then if you're, yeah, if you're raising meat, dealing with processing, I mean, that's, we could have like months long courses just on that aspect of it. And, and then there's the marketing and where and how and how much to price things at and, you know, all of that stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. When you started with this answer, I, I honestly thought you were going in the direction of um, not that local food is elitist, but that people think it should be cheaper than the store. Yeah. yeah and they <laughs> and, do. And sometimes it is, you know, I've actually been looking at meat prices and I'm like, you know, maybe I should be raising my price. Like my, my meat is often cheaper than at the grocery store, especially for a hundred percent grass finished meat. Um, mm. And yet the myth persists, right? That it's, um, that it's always more expensive to buy local, but I think it's, it's not that it's always more expensive. Really. The, the reality is it's often less convenient than being able to just go to a giant grocery store where you can get everything on your list as opposed to, right. you know, coming to our little self-serve farm store where you might be able to pick up like eggs and a couple cuts of meat, but then you have to go elsewhere for all your veggies or whatever. Yeah, that's that's very interesting the way you put that though, because like you're saying in your area that you're generally cheaper than the store. And I think, you know, it obviously depends on how people are pricing. If it's bulk, um, you know, the wholesale, the haves, the holes kind of purchasing versus by cuts. And But up where I am, I have people that, generally think like they're surprised that I cost more than the grocery store. Does. Right. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, wait a minute. It's like, it's direct from the farm. There's no middleman. Uh, it's like <laughs> not quite how that works. I mean, like you got the right idea, but not, not quite. It, so, I learned about, sorry. I don't know if oh, go ahead. I didn't go down this tangent, but I was just going to say I'm, I'm involved in a lot of work around meat processing through my job at, at Cornell. And um, during the pandemic, especially when everyone who raises livestock was like in a panic because it was really, really hard to get processing dates at butchers, even harder than usual. Yep. Um, and I, I learned about the business model of the really huge plants, you know, the ones that um, down in Wyalusing, Pennsylvania, that can do just like tens of thousands of animals um, in a week. And they actually their profit is the, the meat that they sell, which is often what you're getting, you know, in the grocery store or whatever, like they are not making any money on it. That's sort of a, they just do that at cost and they're making money on all the other parts that they harvest from the animals. They can harvest vein complexes and bile and eyeballs and like all kinds of things that they can sell to medical markets or um, you know, teaching schools that need uh, biological matter for classes or whatever, like they, that's where they make their money. And it's really interesting. The small processors that we send our animals to, I mean, they're, it's a whole other level. Like they have to charge a lot of money because they're so much smaller. They're often like family run, they struggle with labor. And so, you know, I might pay like a hundred and $20 to get a lamb processed. Well, that's a huge chunk of my profitability right there is like, you know, there's only like 35 pounds of meat that come off of a lamb and I have to cover all of my costs to raise that lamb. And then there's this $120 butcher fee. So 
yeah, people who think that just because we're selling direct from the farm and there's no middleman, like they don't understand the, it's like apples and oranges, the processing that happens uh, for the kind of meat that you get at the grocery store versus what we're selling. Yeah, those are all, those are all really good points and, and things I hadn't really thought of, but it certainly fits along those lines of, you know, what do they call them? Lost leaders at the grocery store where, yeah. you know, it's food should not be, we've, we've heard that a couple of times, food should not be as cheap as it is, but because of those kinds of things of, you know, the average small butcher, um, you know, especially here in New York, where we have a lot of the custom exempt butchers, they're yeah. not going to even be able to, you know, give you the ears as a separate thing to sell. I've, I've right. seen, you know, some farms will sell like pig ears for dog treats or something. Yeah. And you can't do that. You can't get those unless you go to the USDA butcher and, you know, unless for personal use, you could take them. But, you know, even just some of that kind of smaller things of like, oh, well, you know, you can't even use all of the parts of your pig because of it depends on which butcher you use and what they're, what exactly. they're inspected for and yep. what they're set up to do. And, yeah, that's a huge, huge input change in terms of the less that you can get to sell from any particular animal, the more that that animal has to cost when you sell it. So Yeah, yeah. And there's some folks who would say then that, you know, it's it's inefficient to use small farms and small processors and everything. And this is why we have economies of scale. And this is why we've ended up with four companies doing like uh, it's probably way over 80% now. Last I knew it was 80% of the meat mm -hmm. sales in this country um, because they achieve these economies of scale. But I just think, oh my God, you know, it's not, it's not just about that though. Like then you, then you hear horror stories about these slaughterhouses where there was one recently that was busted for having all kinds of like child labor somewhere in the Midwest. Oh my gosh. Um, oh my goodness. And, and, you know, and then our commute, we don't have food security because like we saw during the early days of COVID, we saw just after 9-11, like when the planes stopped flying, like grocery stores emptied of food and people were freaking out about meat shelves being empty and stuff. And we had all these new customers coming to our farm store. So I just think we, it may not be the most efficient way to do it, to have small farms and smaller processors, but we need more and more and more of them because that's the only way we're going to be able to handle the shocks and the instability or what, whatever else is going to come at us in the future. I think that's perfect too. Perfect uh, misconception about farm life, about farm women. Something you wish your customers knew is that I'm not out here trying to make a million dollars selling, yeah. <laughs> selling my lamb. I'm just trying to cover my right. costs. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all, those are all great things for people to be thinking about when they, when they consider shopping at a small farm versus grocery stores or co-ops or wherever else they're getting them from definitely something to consider so kind of with all of that it's it certainly ought to paint the picture for anybody listening that you know it's not just throw the animals out there and get to it um there's a lot that goes into it in terms of into farming that is in terms of calculating your costs and being conscientious about those things choosing the right butcher so that you can maximize the value that you're providing for your customers and all of that. And without question, it is certainly not an easy job to be a small farmer. So in light of that, you know, there are days that are harder than others. It's, you know, there's going to be medical things that come up. There's going to be 
but we've seen it this winter, especially weather related things mm. on those, on those toughest of days. What is it that keeps you going? Hmm. I just have such a need um, and a love for this. So I, I see there's nothing else could um, nothing else could give me the satisfaction the way that farming does of um, working in a partnership with ecological processes to, like I said earlier, just to, to know that we're improving the soil, providing habitat for birds and animals and insects, and, and also producing really good food for us and our community. It just feels like it's this win, win, win. And so even when, and we've had, we have had so, so many uh, hard and, and even traumatic things happen on the farm even before the fire, you know, just like, I, I really, I bond with my ewes and uh, mm -hmm. have had some pretty disastrous lambing seasons over the years and, uh, you know, have had to witness things that were like, I can't unsee and, um, and lose some of my favorite girls who had been with me for six, seven, eight, nine years even. And um, we've had, I think my husband is still traumatized from early on when we raised pigs and the pigs got out and we're in the middle of the road at like nine <laughs> on a Friday night. And we were in a really stressful period of our lives with a baby who didn't sleep and a toddler and a, um, you know, we had just gone through a really hard week and we're like just sitting down with a glass of wine to try to decompress. And we got a knock on the door that the pigs were in the road and he couldn't get them out of the road because they were chasing a snake. I mean, it's just, you know, they make the stories, <laughs> I guess, over time, but there's there's been a lot of really hard days. And, um, but what keeps me going is just such a deep love uh, for, for this whole lifestyle beyond it being a business. Um, you know, it really is, uh, it really is a lifestyle because we, we're never going to work just 40 hour weeks on the farm, right? Like it's not, it's not like a normal job. Um, and so I think, I think you have to love it and feel passionate about it in order to make it through those hard times and have a sense too, of how it fits in with the rest of your life and the things that you care most about. That's a great answer. And I, I think that answers the, the earlier question too, and not just, um, you know, when you mentioned being a vegetarian and then shifting off of it, yes, part of it might've been sales, but it kind of sounds like some of it is just that connection that it's, would you say that it's, it's kind of affected your perception of the foods you eat in that sense too? Like not just from the, I'm, I should probably, you know, eat what I sell so that there's some trust there, but right. just in terms of kind of like that philosophy has that, has that approach, has that shifted for you because of kind of your, your peace and your connection to what you're doing? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's all about cycles and managing cycles of life and death. Um, we, you know, we wanted our kids to grow up understanding that, like, I think our, our culture has a weird, like taboo around death and yes, like we try to shield kids from animals dying and 
Um, we don't like to talk about ourselves dying. And um, I just think um, we've had conversations with our kids who our kids are now 11 and 15. So they're significantly older, but like, I remember having conversations with them when they were younger about what would happen if, you know, obviously things have to die eventually, maybe they die of old age, right? And nobody kills anything, but like, imagine and then what if they didn't break down what if there weren't bacteria because they thought my my worm compost was really gross but I was like well what if what if nothing ever broke down and you know then we started imagining like a world just completely piled full of dead bugs and dead snakes and dead frogs and dead rabbits and deer and people and you know everything nothing ever breaking down and they were really alarmed at that and so um, we started <laughs> we started involving them more in like you know, here's the compost. This is where we put the food because we're taking the this food that pulled nutrients out of the ground. And then we're, we're going to keep some of those nutrients here and put them back into the ground. And when we would kill chickens, they, they never did like really get into it. So they've never helped us when we process chickens or anything. They're still pretty like grossed out by the blood and everything, but that's fair. I mean, whatever. I still hope they'll get over that someday, but at least they understand that that that's, it's just part of the cycle of life and death. And so we raise things on this land, we eat those things, they nurture us. And then we put it, put what we can back into the land to, to regenerate the soil. Now that people have, they've heard your philosophy on how you approach the farming, everybody's going to want to know more about you, of course. So where would the best place be for people to find you and follow along and kind of connect with you to whether it's to learn more or to just kind of follow your journey, where can they find you? Well, I will say, um, basically, since the since the fire, I was I was kind of on a social media diet, um, and I also actually probably the best place to follow us I uh, has traditionally been to subscribe to our farm newsletter, um, and. Before the fire, I was putting out a newsletter a month and I would always include like some updates of what's going on on the farm. And uh, it was the best place to learn about if we had something available in limited quantity, like when it's a good peach year um, and we would let people come and pick peaches or we'd have them in the farm store. That was the best place to hear about it. But um, but yeah, I have uh, just we needed to sort of take care of our mental health and conserve energy after the fire. And so I. I stopped doing the newsletters and social media for the most part, but I'm, I'm trying to get back to it. So still probably if you were to go to our website, shelterbeltfarm.com, you can subscribe at the bottom. There's a link to subscribe to our farm newsletter. And I am on Instagram at the shelter belts and uh, also on Facebook occasionally under shelter belt farm. Um, obviously anybody local can probably find her through the Cornell program. So before we wrap up, do you have any last, uh, words of wisdom or words of inspiration or anything like that for whoever's listening? I don't, I, I don't yeah. like anything. I know I kind of put you on the spot with that, but <laughs> so let me, let me reword that then. Um, for those who are listening, who whether they're a consumer who just, you know, really wanted to get to know more about the farmers behind the food they eat. Um, maybe for those who are listening, who are aspiring to 
you know, earn the crown for themselves someday. What words of advice or inspiration do you have for those queens in training, we'll call them? Mm. Um, I think just to connect. I mean, that's been a, that has been a thread woven through the 20 something years that I've been involved in farming um, is, and it's one of the things that has kept me involved in farming besides my love of being outdoors and managing land and having my hands dirty and living uh, with natural cycles and rhythms, but it's also the people because farmers and particularly women farmers are like just some of the best humans I've ever met. And I'm only here now where I am because of all the amazing mentors and friends and teachers and advisors who I had when I first started just developing a, a, and nurturing an interest in growing things, particularly since I didn't grow up on a farm. You know, I came at this with like mm-hmm. zero knowledge. Um, and so the the friendships and connections that I made with people who were so generous with their time, answering all of my questions, even, you know, really stupid questions, <laughs> like just so <laughs> patient and wonderful with me. And so um, I just think there's a whole wide world out there of people who are willing to help and generous with their time. And if you if you have any interest in farming at any scale, you know, whether it's something that more resembles um, gardening or or homesteading or something that is full on commercial scale, you know, wanting to support yourself part time or full time with a farm. There's there's just so much community out there. And there's there are there are still relatively speaking, there's very few of us, right? Like farmers in general, including male farmers are less than I think we're now at less than one percent of the population. And so um, right. can't, we can't afford there's, you're going to find people who have differences of opinion about all things related to farming, right? There's people who are really into biodynamic or organic or permaculture or like whatever the thing is. Um, but I, I just, I hate it when I see farmers like nitpicking or infighting amongst themselves, because I just feel like there's too few of us to stand in a circle and fire. Like we need to be banded together and figure out how to get more and more and more farmers because that's what we all need is more people tending the land, stewarding, producing good food, feeding their neighbors, taking care of each other. Very, very well said. Well, that's all I had for you for today. Erica, this was so great. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And, um, like I said, I'm I'm excited to to listen to the other podcasts and especially to the next farm queen who I get to choose. Very excited yep. about that. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support our podcast by clicking the link in the description, by subscribing through your favorite podcast app, and by following us on your favorite social media platform.